0: Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to our podcast. Today, our interviewee is more than special. We have here with us Dr. Annette Kirabo, who is a very successful scientist in the field of hypertension, immune regulation, salt and oxidative stress. And I'm sure many more fields in the future. Annette is currently an assistant professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. What's also very interesting about Annette is that she came all the way from Uganda to the United States and today to be sharing with us her amazing story. Annette, welcome. And we're very excited to have you here with us. Thank you. So just to like to get you started, as in, and as I said, like you have this amazing story that I think you, sh- you should be shared with many, many people because it's very uh, inspiring. Can you tell us a little bit more about this story that I'm talking about? And I also say, how did you get involved with research more specifically, researching hypertension.
2: Thanks very much, Guto, for that question. So my journey uh, as a hypertension researcher is uh, a journey of shattered dreams. And uh, I can say maybe uh, in serendipity. So in Uganda, the country uh, where I was born, I grew up as a little girl in a small village in the bush. I remember wondering why. if someone fell sick, they would be rushed to the hospital and they would often die on the way. There are so many times when this happened. So I kept wondering, whom are they looking for at the hospital? I had never been to the hospital myself. I had never seen a doctor. And when it came to my turn to be rushed to the hospital, and I saw this doctor uh, dressed in white, I wanted to be that person who helps those that people, uh, those people. Uh, Everybody is rushing to them. And so I wanted to be a doctor right from when uh, I was a little girl. But when time came for me to go to university, I, I, I you know the government selected the top 2,000 uh, students out of high school and sponsored them for free education at the university. I was among those two, uh, top 2,000 students, but then I, I had to do veterinary medicine. So my dream of being a doctor was shattered there and then, and I was so discouraged. The whole village was uh, celebrating that uh, one of them, especially a girl, and uh, I wasn't considered prioritized for education and my education. My dad just decided out because I gave a tantrum when my brother, who is younger, was taken to school and I was not being taken to school. So I, I threw this tantrum. My dad took me and my staying in school depended on me being able to stay on top and work so hard so that my dad may be encouraged and mesmerized about skipping me in school. So uh, where well, I, I can jump off to going to uh, vet school, I was obviously discouraged and that showed in my initial performance, but because my going to, uh, to university was a matter of national news, my professors knew that I wasn't putting in my best. So one of my professors called me and told me, Hey, you're not doing your best. Uh, what is going on? And I said, I'm not you know, there is no woman. Veterinary medicine is not for women. I'm the only girl in the class, and I don't know what, how anyone is going to call me to treat their animals. So I don't know what I'm doing here. And so this professor, his name was Ojo Clonzi, He get he gave me this idea about research. You know, there is this thing called research. I've never heard that that is even a profession. So he allowed me to do research in his lab. I, was, I would go to a slaughterhouse and collect intestines of cows and, and check them to see if they have Yon's disease. And he somehow convinced me that that would tie back to human medicine because it will, uh, if, you, um, if you heard about Yon's disease, it was related to, I was researching that. So when I finished, I had the opportunity to travel to the US to seek opportunities that were not otherwise in Uganda. And so when I came here, um, I was able to go into, to do a master's, uh, a master's of medicine. It was still not yet hypertension. And then along the, when I applied to, for PhD in University of Florida, I learned that American Heart Association can sponsor international students, but they have to do cardiovascular disease. So that's when I knew I had to do cardiovascular disease. So it wasn't by choice. So I sought out mentors who do cardiovascular disease, uh, Dr. Sajewski and Dr. Chris Davis, and I was able to get an H. A. grant, and that is how I ended up in cardiovascular disease research. Wow,
0: yeah, that's amazing. That's an amazing story, yeah. Thank you, and um, and tell us more about uh your role in research, and not just in research, but also uh, if you contribute to any committee work, and how you feel about spending time doing that.
2: Yes, so I um, uh, So I, I've been an assistant professor for now four years, and I, I, I sit on perhaps too many committees. Many of the committees are in, in hypertension and I couldn't be more happy about this. I feel fulfilled. You know, for example, just yesterday I was on the hypertension leadership committee and seeing that that is where change happens mm-hmm. and that my my ideas are valued. I can give ideas and that could, you know, uh, push where we go. I'm so passionate about um, equity and uh, research, and also including uh, researchers in diverse geographical regions, including um, sub-Saharan Africa. I really feel I feel um, very good in uh, uh, com- contributing to you know the way how where research is going and uh, knowing that being on committees is how you can drive change.
0: Mm. I completely agree. And I think this is such an undervalued uh, key aspect of sitting in committees is actually driving change. Yeah.
2: yeah. And I feel I know that uh, being a minority and also being a woman and being an immigrant in this place, I, I know that Amanda represented in all categories. Okay, so I feel the responsibility to, um, to be there. And sometimes that can be overbearing. It can be a lot. It is rewarding, but it is a lot. And I feel the overwhelm of, of uh, you know, too much. And uh, I know that my colleagues, were, you know, my colleagues who are not minorities don't have to, as many duties that I have, which is another burden that our minorities and women face in research and, um, you know, but, I feel like I have to do this right now until maybe change can be effected and we can be more uh, represented.
0: Yeah, no, I I'm think at, that, that's important. Yeah.
1: You mentioned in the beginning that like you're in that uh, school and you're not enjoying it and but you had a person that came to you and then changed your mind. So that's like the role of a mentor. So. If like when you consider like the, the entire experience of mentorship in your whole career, how would you define like which word, word would you use to define mentorship?
2: So uh, uh, the word that defines mentorship to me is um, uh, NACHA. And NACHA, if you, if, if you think about the um, the definition of the word nature is a process of caring. And it also involves, it, it encompasses encouraging the growth and development of someone. So I, as, a, uh, as a mentee, and as I begin to mentor people, that is how I take mentorship. You're not just Guiding this person and imparting knowledge into them, but you're nurturing them, you're caring for them, and encouraging their growth, and you take responsibility for their growth.
0: And Annette, do you think mentoring is important and why
2: is that? Mentoring is extremely important. I could not be where I am without mentors. You know, my parents were my first mentors, and I still seek mentorship even right now. So it is extremely important. I think uh, it is a need. It says, uh, if you're going to be successful in the research career in STEM, you have to be mentored. You need mentorship. Otherwise you won't be able to survive.
1: And, and then like, I think like I know the answer for this question, like it's pretty much like when you realized that you needed a mentor but can you give us like more examples of like specific times in your career where you were able to recognize, I need a mentor and why did you need that?
2: Yeah, so the word mentorship did not come to me when, but I've, I've been seeking out mentorship, you know, from when I was a little girl, because uh, for me, performance class, extremely important and I remember so many times that go even to the you know if someone is doing well in math I would go reach out to them like peer mentorship but when I realized I think it was in grad school when I realized how important mentorship is and not just mentorship good mentorship uh, for example when I realized that I had to do cardiovascular disease and I reached out to you know, Dr. Sieski was my original mentor, but did not was not focused on cardiovascular disease. So I reached out to Dr. Chris Baylis, and she mentored me and taught me how to do, uh, you know, research in cardiovascular disease. So I think as uh, an uh, early in my career as a PhD, that's when I realized that I needed mentorship to succeed in in, in academics.
1: Amazing,
0: yeah. And now, Annette, that you are a mentor yourself, can you tell us a little bit about your own mentoring style and any examples of ways that you have helped your own mentees?
2: Okay, my my mentoring style. Uh, the the basis for my mentoring, and as I begin to me, I've just I'm just ending my career as uh, I've been on a. A career development grant, and I've been mentoring people as a mentee, but to, and I've been um, a peer mentee, but as I transition to someone who is responsible for nurturing the growth of other scientists, and I feel this is a privilege, and I'm so thankful that they can trust me, <laughs> they can trust me with their research career, and I take this extremely seriously. And as I continue, and, and I know that my mentoring style is going to evolve as I grow and learn. I cannot, right now, I'm not going to give you the, you know, the whole, but I, I'll continue to learn and it is going to grow. But the basis, what guides me, the guiding principle for my mentoring plan is trust, respect, and civility. I believe that uh, there is no I, a hierarchy in respect. Everybody deserves to be respected regardless of whether they know science or not. So that is my guiding principle. Then other things that uh, come with that are effective communication for, I think that the goals and expectations for both the the mentor and mentee need to be exclusively uh, communicated at the beginning of the mentoring committee. And, you know, I've hired a few postdocs and they know that when they come, I have this written, Piece of paper that has all the expectations that I have of them. And uh, they also have shown me what they expect of me. And this is so serious that we sign it. So that uh, if if things are not going well, we have a place to go to and say, you know, I think this is what we discussed. But I think it is good. It looks serious, but I think knowing expectations and clear communication is uh, important. And also the other guiding principle for me is to be fair uh, and also unquestioned integrity. You you cannot please everyone at all times, but if all the decisions are made on a fair basis and and ethics as a guiding factor, I think with showing no favoritism, I know that mentoring has to be individualized but you have to be ethical with with no favoritism. And I also have to be culturally aware. I have diverse, I'm mentoring diverse scientists. And I need to know that this one's background is not the same as this this one's background. So there is that um, individualization in my mentoring plan, but also being ethical and fair. And I take the importance of being interested, like I said, with mentorship very, very seriously. I want to be inclusive and value everyone, but also, uh, like I said, you know, and I have to be compassionate, especially mentorship during this COVID-19 period has been, has taught me a lot, Mm. Where you know, people are experiencing a lot of unique challenges so I had, and I also was experiencing uh, unique challenges, and so within these complexities, I have <clears throat> compassion and empathy for each person, without expecting the same output from each person, depending of how, of uh, depending on what they are going through, but not making anyone feel, you know, over, you know, or, you know, overbearing or some something like that. So. It is a fine line of trust, uh, respect, civility, empathy, fairness. I don't know if I answered your question. I know I have talked a lot. No,
0: no, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I I love it. I can't believe that's the first time we met, because it's almost like I could have said those things too. (laughs) I I also have a lab manual, and I have all the expectations from my team and the things that they can expect from me. And I also make them sign it.
2: Exactly.
0: They exactly. have a lot of things in company. I love it. Yeah, I love yeah. it. And
2: then yeah. you, I make decisions, uh, you know, uh, because we have these expectations, but then the journey can be, you know, may not, is not may not be straight. So I make decisions as I go along, depending on the current situation. So there's those expectations, but we also need to live within, uh, within the moment, you know, especially no one was expecting this COVID-19. And uh, I was. It happened when I was on my time to leave, and I was mentoring remotely, and you know. So this was different. I had to make decisions on a on a daily basis and a moment by moment basis.
1: And and that, when you think about like a mentee, uh, how would you define good mentee?
2: Yeah, that I think uh, I'm. Uh, I think a lot of uh, my success, <laughs> I, I, give, I give myself credit for being able to find good mentors. That is the best thing I've done. I, if there is one thing I've done is to be able to identify and, and also know how to be a mentee. You know, for example, when I sought out Dr. Harrison, you know, at Vanderbilt I knew that I, I, you know, where I wanted to go, and I knew based on his track record that he is the one to take me there. I was offered multiple positions in very excellent research programs, but, um, you know, that, you know, it was a, ter- a very, very difficult decision, but, it's, you know, choosing a mentor is extremely important. And as a mentee, some of the qualities that I've mentioned of a mentor, for example, effective communication, you know, don't expect your mentor to read your mind, <laughs> you know, uh, and also respect uh, respect and trust. All these need to be uh, very good uh, good qualities of a mentee. But the other the other uh, um, quality that most mentees don't have is that you need to lead upwards. You know, it's like, uh, it. you know, the mentor is a leader, you need to lead, you need to, uh, um, I don't know how to, uh, 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 the ability to lead upwards. And sometimes you need to guide your mentor in what, in what you, um, in, in helping you reach there. For example, if the, we, we used to have one-on-one meetings, but uh, some mentors go to the one-on-one meetings without preparing, but how prepared I was, and ask specific questions, ask for specific things can drive that mentorship further and you receive more than when you just go into a meeting um, without preparing. You know, you know sometimes uh, there are even times when you don't agree with a mentor. So when, or, for example, when there's a difference in opinion and as a mentee, for me there are t- at times when I did not necessarily agree with what my mentor, for example, an experiment he was telling me to do. But I try to understand, you know, what? what is the rationale? What is the value that is leading to this uh, decision? And if I don't agree with him, I would have a dialogue with him and, uh, you know, and you know, so, and, and, and ask ask him what, where he's coming from if I don't agree. But then I don't take that difference of opinion as, um, you know, I don't uh, negatively look at it. It is a difference in opinion and uh, sometimes I just do to see, uh, to, uh, to go through even if I don't agree and I, w- I would not go and say, you know, Dr. So-and-so told me to do this and I don't agree with the idea. That's a great way to be a bad mentor. So you just, uh, you, know, you may not agree and you, he is the one you have the conversation with and uh, you discuss, you have a dialogue, respect the, his opinion uh, sometimes you just have to follow through as a mentee. So I think that is a great way to be a male mentee that uh, effective communication and also being able to lead upwards uh, effectively.
1: And there's something that you said that I think is very important it's like to know where you want. And then because exactly. when you know where you want, you, you know how, how to get there and then how to yes. really uh, take advantage of that mentorship relationship.
2: Exactly. You have mm-hmm. to know what you want. And that is what I, I for my mentees, I say, it is okay if your goals change. And I have this, you know, we have regular science, science meetings, but we have these meetings also career-wise. You know, if, you're, if you think you're changing in how you think, I really respect if you want to go to do industry or go teach or stay in academia, but if you feel that is changing because things can evolve, I need to know. And nothing no your career, whatever you decide to do, are not going to be hard. just I just want to be able to guide you in the most effective way possible
0: and and you also touch bases on training environment and how important selecting the right uh, mentor, the, the right supervisor was. I was wondering if you can expand and tell us a little bit more about how uh, people can identify the best training environment for them. So not like the supervisor, but not just the supervisor, like the team and the research and the research culture as well.
2: Yeah. And, you know, that, and that is also on an individual basis, you know. So for me, I had to go to these different places and look at, the the totality of and 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 also a lot of trainees because they they were undergrads and they looked at the role of this protein in a disease they get attached to that and they want to look for a project which they have they are familiar with but that is not at all important the mentor and the environment is what is important in the success. Because science is a global thing that can be applied to any question. So you you learn all these techniques and you can answer any question that comes your way. So I really think the mentor and the environment are the most important. And it is important to go and get a feel of how you fit into that environment. And you know, you're giving all, you know, uh, consideration to other people, the resources around the track record of the mentor as he mentored. And I'm talking this, I know that I'm a new mentee and I don't want someone to be choosing me as a mentor by looking at my track record because I, have, I don't have a track record. But, you know, I, you know the track, you know, I, I have, I mean, you have to go and talk to the mentor and uh, see that they are able to, put, to take you where you want to be. You know, for me, when I was looking at Dr. Harrison for my postdoc, I wanted to stay in academia and I had a track record of so many people that have stayed in academia. And when people come to me to be a postdoc, I have to communicate to them exactly the path that I have for them, that, uh, to, for, their, for their path. If they want to stay in academia, I have paired them with senior mentors that have a track record since I don't have a track record. That will get, you know, that if you want to write any grant, this person, I've already talked to them, they're going to be your core mentor and you will be able to, you know, get where you are because it's a track record they have. And I say that, you know, in combining me with, for example, Dr. Harrison, Dr. Tom Clayman is another mentor that I, I, you know, I have adapted, you know, like if we, within this team, it's not just me, within this team, we are able to take you where you want to be.
0: Can I tell you something? Don't sell yourself short because I think you have such an amazing uh, life perspective and experience and something that I find, because of course I'm in a similar uh, career stage, something that we need to take into consideration that we have to offer that some of the most senior researchers don't have is time. And we are willing and and we are able to spend much more time with our mentees and our students and our teams than they have sometimes. And Mm -hmm. selling that about it is the right environment and I'm going to be there to guide you in every single step and support you. I think that's also so important and that's something that they can't expect from their like superstar supervisors. Yeah. I couldn't Mm -hmm.
2: agree
1: but one like interesting thing as well, Annette, and I think like what uh, new, the young investigators are really appreciating nowadays is things happening in real time. So with you or Francine or myself, like people that are like, are you know, in that uh, beginning of their career, uh, they learn better or a little bit better, let's say, because they see things happening in real time. So they also leave through it with you. And I think that's like a very good uh, learning experience.
2: Yeah. That so, really-
1: Annette, now, if you think about like, you know, you came to the U.S. and you had to talk to a lot of different people, uh, I'm assuming, uh, different mentors and everything. And I think some of them at the beginning, you may have the thought like, oh, my God, that person is uh, top-notch in this area? I need to talk to them, I need to have an interview, I find them intimidating, so uh, so you get nervous. So, my question to you is like, how did you overcome that? How did you overcome like what what do you say to someone that's very timid uh or shy, and someone that uh is afraid of talking to senior uh, researchers and everything? What will be your recipe for success on that aspect? Yeah.
2: Yeah, so that is a very intriguing question, and uh, I have done so many things wrong that I've learned from a lot of mistakes. You know, growing up in Uganda, uh, women, are I you know, if you, you know, I, I came, you know, the culture in Uganda has shaped had shaped me differently, where women are subordinates and they are underlooked. There, uh, it's not something a culture that I'm. I'm uh, particularly proud of, but also as a woman to look someone in the face directly, that is offensive. And then I come oh. to the US where I'm supposed to talk to someone, you know, looking in their eyes and I'm not, uh, I, that was a challenge. And uh, I it, i was so fortunate that my first mentor from Africa, they just kept telling me that you have to maintain eye contact and it was extremely difficult. And the other difficult thing is that you know when I came to the US, my mentors wanted me to talk to, to call them by their first name, and that was extremely difficult. As I was like professor in, in Uganda I was used to calling Professor Lonzi, and now I have to call you Dave instead of you know. So I, it was uh, ex- I had those um, cultural challenges, but also uh, someone you mentioned someone intimidating, and sometimes it may not be someone intimidating I still have even right now I find talking to someone sometimes intimidating depending on the topic for example if I'm asking for a raise in salary that is an intimidating um, topic for me to talk about even if I'm going to talk to someone I talk to every day because you know asking for things is you know it's a topic that is sensitive but um, in terms of uh, if someone is really intimidating in, in, if they are truly intimidating or a bully, to say to say it another way, uh, what one thing, and I've found, I've had in some of, of these relationships too. One th- thing that I've learned over time is you respond and do not react. So responding comes from uh, it, by responding, I mean, you, you've thought about your response and you calculate your words. Reaction, if you react, it comes from an automatic place where your feelings just drive your response, but respond. And if I think that someone is, uh, is, in, is, is intimidating, what has helped me well is to think of the worst scenario and plan exactly what I'm going to do. Even if I'm going to cry, I plan that I'll cry when he says this. Most cases, that doesn't happen. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so you plan for the worst scenarios. <laughs> so whatever <laughs> they say, you're able to respond instead of reacting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I honestly, I, I honestly don't think that anyone wants to be a bully. I don't think. That anyone wants to be intimidating, and so that is why leading upwards, you can diffuse. Um, you can diffuse a situation even if someone is escalating. You know, for example, well, some of the tricks include saying back exactly what they say. You know, can say, "I hear you say that." You know, exactly what they said. Sometimes, if if you say it back, they hear how ridiculous it is. How it, like, and most people will be like, "No, that's not what I meant." Uh, and then uh, you know, then you you're in the clear. It's like, "Oh, I'm sorry." And sometimes even saying that, I feel like I owe you an apology uh, because you know it seems like I triggered this feeling. You know, uh, you know. Sometimes just uh, you know thinking about what you're about to say and not just react is uh, you know. And also sometimes I, you know, when I go in and talk, I, I'm talking about an intimidating topic or sensitive topic and someone escalates, I say, well, I, I just, um, I don't think we are, we'll be able to solve this right now. Can we revisit later? I feel like uh, we are, you know, there's some emotions and it seems like I've triggered you, but uh, can, can we... Um, revisit this later and another thing that I I also do is if the topic is so sensitive I write an email to go ahead of me because I think better when when I'm writing instead of being in front of uh, someone so I write exactly dear Dr. So-and-so I want to talk to you about this sensitive topic do you have some time to meet these are the points I'm going to talk about and I say exactly what I'm going to talk about and then when I go there, they already probably sometimes they already just give me a solution, <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know. And also instead of also because many people also react, they have thought about how they are going to respond to me, which yeah. you know, usually is uh, is uh, less painful than if they had said it if I just shocked them with the news. So mm-hmm. those, that's uh, very clever. Yeah. So those are some of the ways that I've uh, learned. I've I've already not known this, and I've learned through a lot of pain. But uh, you know, some ways to diffuse you know situations where someone is a bully, or they have escalated to to anger by something I said. You know, the best way is to stop it right there, not continue. Don't yell with your mentor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> And Annette, you mentioned before about your role in sitting in committees and how you have been able to drive a lot of work around diversity and inclusion. And I was wondering, if you can comment, what do you think the biggest issue uh, about diversity and inclusion is and how we can change that in our field?
2: So, that, uh, thank you for asking that question. And that is a, a huge, huge... Uh, issue that we are facing, especially right now, Um, as you already know that, you know, with the killing of uh, Mr. Floyd and a number of other minorities, blacks, especially in the US, uh, it has brought up a conversation that is extremely important. And Mm we recognize the urgency of now because we can drive some change right now as things are happening. And I know I'm, I'm aware that there are systems that define our society and they are embedded within the way we do things every day. Someone does not have to be a racist to, uh, for these systems to not work. Blacks have been pushed to live in some areas that for example, they don't have you know, um, healthy food and they're already predisposed to hypertension, for example. And we need to foster you know research for example in hypertension for people who are you know for example for, for example blacks and other minorities that live among these uh, these communities you know one way to solve it so that they you know because they know exactly the conditions that are leading to these some of them that are due to systemic racism and also these uh, structure systems that are already embedded and And, you know, these researchers are the ones that are able to give us answers and maybe slowly we can effect change. And also sitting on committees, um, I was, like I mentioned, I was on the the leadership committee meeting recently, and I was so delighted to see that the HA leadership is already thinking about this and putting together ways to reach out to diverse scientists. They are already putting out liaisons and reaching out to uh, researchers in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. And one way they discuss is uh, subsidizing cost. You know, if you think $100 is not nothing, $100 is, uh, you know, it is a lot enough in, Af- in, in Africa for someone living in Africa. And to get that, to pay a membership, for, H- for example, uh, is just not, not affordable. So they are looking at way of subsidizing cost for uh, one to attend meetings, uh, also to, uh, to, to attain membership or, on these. And so seeing that uh, people are ready, about it really makes me feel very good about where we are going. I know that it's a, a very slow moving bus, but I think we are headed in the right direction. And I hope that even international, uh, internationally, people can be thinking about this and, in, and including um, researchers from diverse geographical locations into research by helping subsidizing, uh, by subsidizing uh, some of these things. Uh, there are so many other, you know, like, you know, there was a researcher recently that uh, posted on one of the groups that uh, I follow on social media where a group in sub-Saharan Africa um, submitted a paper for, for, uh, for publication in an, an American uh, journal and a lot of the critics were like, well, this probably contributes to locally in that location, but it does not apply to a diverse research, um, research environment, which I think that is extremely exclusive, it's not inclusive. Mm-hmm. So these people need to be encouraged to be on edit- editorial boards, they need to be encouraged to submit papers to American and international journals, and we need to um, to include them uh, in as reviewers so that uh, their research is also seen by a wider a wider environment.
1: Yeah.
2: That's sometimes a very like good
1: point. Like, yeah. Sorry. Good. You know, point. sometimes I feel like people are very like short-sighted, right? Because. Uh, some, like other people may say like, oh, in that study, as you gave an example, oh, that's interesting because if that's so specific to the population, we may find a new mechanism that may be unknown to the most general one that it's something that will come out like good, right? So uh, I, I just don't understand why, why people tend to be so short-sighted uh, some people yeah, and
2: uh, uh, it is that that kind of mentality is uh, driven by you know unconscious bias it's not that you know their meaning to be like that it's just they don't know and so we're being exposing the wider community to some of these things and just teaching them assume they don't know and just teach them I think one by one'll be able to uh to undo some of these uh systems that drive structural racism Uh, and maybe
1: yeah i just have like a little a little question like an additional question just to see like what's your opinion uh so you're talking about like you know um like people living in uh in regions where like they only have bad food and this kind of things but what about education do you think because we usually say that scholarships and you know uh, like PhD scholarships go to the excellence, excellent students and everything? Do you think that people in uh, minorities, like, do you think they have enough, how um, um, to say, enough access? Um, access to education that allows them to really explore their academic excellence to be competitive? to these scholarships?
2: Not at all, not at all. There is no, I personally, um, I live within uh, my limits because a lot of my extra money, I sent it back to Africa because I recognize a lot of uh, kids that have potential. And I know that if I send a hundred dollars it can educate someone. So, uh, I mean, uh, and, You know, uh, scholarships are not not designed for the people who need them. You know, it's not that those people don't have talent. There's tremendous talent in minorities if you really look for it. But because they are not able to reach where these other people that, you know, um, that can reach that the scholarships and they have all these, they have everything that is in place to be competitive for scholarships. Uh, the, the the other people cannot reach there, and yet you know if you can go down and look for 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 talent, you know in in lower places where, and then you provide scholarships at that level, then you'll be able to to create. And you have to go where they are, you know. You have to really seek out this talent because many of them don't even have access to some of the schools which are privileged to get. Uh, good education
0: and then if you have uh, a link or like someone that we could contact that perhaps we could uh, add to the podcast that other people that are uh, thinking of helping that they could also sponsor someone to study that would be amazing and we'll be very happy to promote
2: that i i can <laughs> i can give you any time i i have overwhelmingly you know the things that there's no um I don't know. I have to look for. There's no charity, and be, when you when you sponsor charity, that money is not gonna reach that child. What I do is I just connect with the child themselves. If you want, oh, I wow. yeah. with a child that you can sponsor. I know so many kids right now that have potential that are not going to. Right now, there was, a, for example, in Uganda, there was P.E. What they call P.E. it is a national exams, and I know kids that. I've done so excellent, and they're not going to high school because the parents cannot afford. And I can do so much. So I, there is a, there is need. Uh, there is no if you just say I'm going to give to this charity, it's not going to reach the kids. I don't I don't do that. I just uh, I just identify the kid, and, just, and sometimes I have even directly pay the money to the school. <laughs>
0: yeah yeah oh well if, if people if, if it's okay for people to contact you if they would like to sponsor a kid that you know uh yeah. is that okay
2: i got yeah. yeah i can give them a kid amazing. and yes. contact so yeah. yeah and uh
1: that's, <laughs> a, <yeah>. that's amazing, <laughs> and, amazing amazing because like it's mm-hmm. so beautiful like the pay it forward mm-hmm. um like it's it's very honorable
0: and uh, I think that's a really good uh, uh, comment that you talk about uh, privilege of already having access to education and to some of the basic things that we just take for granted. Uh, I was listening to a podcast the other day and they're talking about privilege and something that I had never considered myself and uh, um, I'm quite ashamed to admit is that growing up in a safe environment where you have access to education, where you have access to care, to food, that alone is a privilege. And when, yeah, and when we are talking about then uh, people going on and, you know, going to university, uh, developing amazing careers, uh, if people didn't have access to those things very early on, that's already putting them in a position that, uh, that they are less likely to be able to get, yeah, to, like at an university, and things that we, uh, uh, in some countries like Australia, you just take it for granted that you have that
2: opportunity. Yeah, yeah. when I came to the US, the one thing was stressful. Even sometimes, it it I find it stressful when my I'm married to an American husband, and you know, at the beginning of the of the pandemic, he filled the garage with all these fruits and then toilet paper and I was so stressed because it's excess. I mean, people throw food and I find it stressful because I remember not having food and you have to sing yourself to sleep because it is and uh, it is taken for granted that uh, and sometimes I, I begin to take it for granted too here where I have access to excess and I have to remind myself constantly how I grew up. But I think also that that, that exposure to adversity, I think, um, made me a little more <laughs> resilient. You know, sometimes I, I, there are so many situations that I would not have gone, be able to go through for, you know, during the pandemic it was extremely difficult. But one thing that kept me put me into gear that, you know, I need to survive. This is, you know, I have to kind of go back because this is not the first time that, you know, I'm exposed to death and not, I, I, you know, where well, tomorrow is not guaranteed because that, is, that was my, you know, my life growing up. I just went back to that and I just decided this is a survival, you know, kind of like a war. So it's like, I have to live day by day because tomorrow is not guaranteed. So I think it is, uh, it's a good thing that I was exposed to that kind of uh, life. I think it helps me to be resilient and go through some other situations.
1: Annette, now talking about like women in hypertension uh, or in research, let's say, uh, what advice would you have to to them?
2: Uh, I mean, women in STEM face unique challenges some of them are not obvious, some of them are insidious. It's kind of it's also like racism, you know, uh, with, the, with the way the systems that have been embedded, we have to go to overcome a lot of challenges. You know, sometimes you're sitting in a round table and a woman suggests uh, something. And uh, when a man says the same thing, then that it makes something like then it is recognized. But I think that uh, women, we need, we know, it. we have to know it and, and and support each other. You know, for example, if I'm, I'm sitting in a meeting and I'm more advanced than another woman who says an idea, and then it's it's uh, shut down, and another person says and it's promoted. I say, well, that you can say that the other person said it first, you know. And so it is. Women are also facing a lot, and it's so hard to be on the intersection between race and women, but, um, you know, it is what it is. We have to, we, we women have a lot of challenges to go through to, you know, to be able to achieve in STEM, in, in a research career.
0: And talking about, um diversity, and also uh, I think all the issues that we're facing at the moment. You mentioned briefly before about the pandemic and the impact that that is having and how you as a mentor, you assess that on an individual basis. But what do you think we can do as a community to better support the junior researchers that we have in our sector, in our field during the pandemic? What do you think are the key factors that are affecting them and how we, how we support them?
2: Ah, uh, yeah, so uh, you know uh, the you know being a woman and you have to take care of the home, you know, if you know women with children and then you have to do research, it has been difficult. I mean, and um there has been an outpouring of uh, support, you know in my institution. They extended uh, the tenure, the clock, tenure for for invest for young investigators, and I'm very appreciative of that. Other institutions have done. A number of other supportive, uh, uh, supportive things. You know, giving some extra funding for these women, and also one-on-one mentoring. Uh, I had a lot of one-on-one mentoring. People, some, you know, uh, my mentors were reaching out to me and just wondering exactly what they need to be done. And so I, I see already an outpouring of support, and I'm so thankful. And I don't know um, what else needs to be done, but I think we really need, in, because I, I fear that five years from now people are going to forget that women experience this period of time and kind of go back to equalization. But I, I, I'm hoping that even funding agencies and uh, you know other international agencies should uh, or keep this in mind, you know the impact it has caused on women for a little longer, and reach out to support them, and you know, allocate some funding that will help uh, bridge the gap. Yeah, I agree,
1: yeah.
0: Let's not forget this period, yeah. Yeah, and let's, let's support not forget. People.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree
0: amazing thank you this was amazing uh, this was such a beautiful conversation and i love that uh, i love that uh, we touched so many important topics but we also we laughed <laughs> and uh yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i love it
2: thank you so much and i thank you so much
0: for taking the time
2: uh, thank you so much for the opportunity and you know it was so nice talking with you and good
0: Thank you for listening to our interview. If you'd like more tips on mentoring, subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with senior and emerging leaders. Stay safe, open-minded and kind.